Here at Educas, we continue to provide a comprehensive package of support to aid you in the delivery of our geography qualifications, including expert advice and guidance from our subject specialists to support your teaching and free resources to be used in the classroom or for blended learning. We're here to support you. Welcome, everybody. Today, I'm talking to John Huckle and Paul Turner about teaching critical school geography, what it is to be a radical school geographer, and some arguments for a reorientation of the school subject towards the goal of developing global citizens, but also students committed to radical global democratisation. John, you began teacher training in 1969 and 30 years at uh, Bedford College of Education. You left there in 1997 to become a visiting lecturer on London South Banks University Master's Course in Education for Sustainability. You've done a huge amount of education consultancy in your time, writing many papers, many books. And I just have to say the latest is an immense piece of work. It's called Critical School Geography, Education for Global Citizenship, which we'll be talking about. It's a free ebook, which is just an awesome resource underpinned by critical social theory. And it's full, full of schemes of work. And Paul, head of geography for the last five years, and then you stepped out of the classroom. So at the end of last year, you wanted to commit more time to climate change education, engage in teacher training, and you work part-time in the air quality officer for Sustrans, working with schools running workshops and lessons around air pollution, helping them set up school streets and things like that. The rest of your time is freelance writing and teaching resources. And just before we started this podcast, we talked about one of the resources, which I think is superb. You're a tutor for Aim High, and that's another free online school. All sorts of resources on there. And it described itself as the nature first, curiosity powered school. So thank you both for joining me today. It's a great pleasure. It's interesting because you both say that you want change, perhaps from a slightly different perspective. I'm not sure. Paul, you're developing a powerful idea of, of, of radical geography, and it comes from research. It comes from res, from your own teaching, other teachers' practices. Uh, it's a, a collegiate thing. Um, and John, you set out your thinking about critical school geography, and it's been a long career. You've been writing about this since the beginning of time, since since bef- about when I started teaching, I think. And this is the idea of a critical theory and pedagogy. And I want to ask you. A, a little bit of a question on on this business of how we manage change. John, on your bio, John, you say education of itself cannot create a more democratic and sustainable society, but suitably planned and delivered, it can play a key role in the overall struggle for democracy and sustainability. And you say that there's a tradition that you think needs to be recovered, updated and made available to classroom teachers and that's really what the ebook hopefully I've, I've encapsulated that so tell me a little bit about what that means I think the key aim of critical school geography is to enable students to realize that geography is the product of interacting biophysical and social structures and processes that people make the world along with the rest of nature and citizens can change the world nothing is inevitable nothing is normal or to be taken for granted. Now this message to students is particularly relevant at the present time when we face continuing economic, social and environmental crises which are accentuated by COVID. 
So in critical school geography, I argue that we can realize a more sustainable future by eroding the power of elites, the 1%. We should democratize all spheres of social life, economic, political, and cultural at all levels from the local to the global. And the book is based on doing three things really. It draws on the work of critical academic geographers and educators that is underpinned by critical social theory. It focuses on the concerns of older students regarding their present and future lives, such concerns as their mental health, their schooling, their future housing, work, their diets, global geopolitics. And to do all this, it seeks to embed UNESCO's guidance on ESD, Education for Sustainable Development, and global citizenship in school geography. It draws on UNESCO advice because I consider it a progressive body of theory which can be given a more radical slant. So just to finish answering your question, the, uh, the tradition that needs to be recovered and updated is that of anarchist, Marxist and socialist geography and education, all of which are underpinned by critical social theory. Now this tradition dates back to the 19th century. It's alive in academic geography and academic educational studies, but 40 years of conservative educational reform means that it's largely disappeared from school geography. So what the ebook does is seek to reintroduce it to classroom teachers. Paul, you'd agree with that entirely, wouldn't you? You write about a model of education that challenges that status quo, the business as usual, both within education and a wider society. And that, I think, is what is embodied in radical geography. Would I, as am I right with that? Yeah, no, hearing John there, I definitely agree with a lot of what he's saying, in, in particularly this sense of a creep of this conservative agenda. And, and hopefully that's something we'll mention again later on. Um, just before I come on to the radical geography, I wanted to say that I think maybe a lot of teachers have experienced over the last few months um, this creeping privatisation where a lot of their teaching has been mediated by these big corporations, these big global companies like Google and Microsoft, because we've been forced to have to use those sorts of platforms um, to facilitate learning. And I think that's uh, maybe a way or an aspect that, that people might um, have experienced this over the last few months and, and that might kind of give them a sense of the immediacy and a sense of feeling about this. But yes, this this radical geography is not new. And that's something we were keen to set out as well, that, you know, John has been working around these sorts of ideas for decades. And um, a lot of what we are hinging this concept on actually comes out of Antipode, which is the, the um, a journal, a radical journal of geography that was first published in 1969. Um, and I'll just read... Um, in terms of how they define um, their role within, so the the antipode and the radical uh, the journal of geography publishes innovative papers that push the boundaries of radical geographical thinking, and a lot of it is based around just as John was saying these sorts of feminist, Marxist, uh, anarchist, um, and 
potentially more uh, left field ideas. Um, the, the role of radical geography as well is this idea that we are recognizing the past of geography, that it comes from a very imperialistic and colonialistic um, perspective, and that we need to show how geographical knowledge and thinking can play a role in radical social, political and environmental activism. So just as sort of John was talking there about agency and empowering, um, I think there's similar themes with this concept of radical geography. How do you see then this this fitting with the new Department for Education guidance that instructs schools not to teach students about extreme political stances? Perhaps John first. How do you feel about that? I think it's part of the current culture wars, the war on woke, as it's being called. I think we um, we simply defend what we're doing on the grounds of uh, free speech and uh, developing political literacy. Paul? Yeah, so, um, yeah, I, th I think we should be deeply worried and concerned about this. I think on the face of it, it might seem superficial and, um, uh, you know, not particularly important, but I think it, it is an extreme authoritarianism and this idea that... Um, uh, in reality, dem democracy requires freedom of speech and an educated populace. And we need critical thinkers. We need people who are willing to question um, the status quo. And both in terms of so uh, challenging the environmental problems that we face, but also more broadly in terms of society and, and politics. And if you read this guidance, I've got some of it here, you know, talking about not being able to um, mention anything which publicly states desire to abolish or overthrow democracy, capitalism or to end free and fair elections. Um, so, you know you can understand some of the extreme nature of this, but also what it doesn't allow is any critical thought about it. So you can't raise these ideas in a way that actually um, critiques them. There's a danger that you're very, there's a narrow focus and you're narrowing the ability to be able to explore ideas. I've had some teachers, I, I did the, um, some of the, the training on the, um, the critical thinking for achievement course that the DfE funded that went through the GA. And John, you mentioned that in your book. And I had some teachers who were who were concerned that they were coming over too much as activists, and they they felt uncomfortable. We ran continuum lines, and I gave them statements to respond to. How would you feel if? And when they felt that it was putting them in a position of of being, uh, of imposing their own views, or at least of of imposing a, a value or a view, they got very uncomfortable about it. Some of them, anyway. Paul, how, how so do you deal I, with that? I think we have been conditioned to think in that way, that we have been conditioned to feel uncomfortable. But the reality is we need to, to feel empowered in that sense. We are all humans who have our own perspectives and opinions. And uh, we can't detach ourselves as a teacher from those. We need to acknowledge them and embrace them. And by acknowledging them, we actually... Uh, that creates a better curriculum and a better experience. Um, I also think that teachers need to accept that the act of teaching is wrapped up in activism. So learning is a form of activism by engaging with the world and encouraging others to learn and understand the world differently is activism. And that education is a political act. And I think there's a danger that if teachers don't acknowledge that and don't accept it and position themselves within that, they innately are reinforcing the status quo and this creeping conservatism. That if you feel that you as a teacher are not political, by its very nature, you're probably reinforcing the current um, status quo and thinking. Yeah, you've got a quote on your website, haven't you, that you got from um, oh, a history website 
which says something I'm going to have to paraphrase it because if I can't find it now, but something like the teaching is a political act. Whatever you do within the classroom is uh, is a political act, however you deal with it. So I see, oh, let me see if I oh, can find on. it there, sorry. Because, um, yeah, I've just found the, the quote. If you as a teacher engage your students in critical thinking, yes, you're I engaging in a political act. Yeah. Um, you're changing, you're changing the way, the way think. they think. Yeah. Yeah. And I think... Um, with this focus on on refreshing our curriculums and being critical of what we teach, I think it's it's ever more important to have that thinking when refreshing our curriculums. I think we've got to recognise that this links to some extent to the deprofessionalisation of teachers and the fact that teachers consider less theory in their training now than formerly. So notions of political literacy, notions of values education, techniques for cultivating um, moral autonomy and political literacy, and the theories behind them are not as well known to teachers as they perhaps were 20 years ago. I'm moving teacher training out of universities and moving it into schools. Right. It's very much had that effect, I think. And, and there's been recent reports that show the government are keen to, to push that even further and to try and disconnect teacher training from universities totally, move to a more sort of teach first model where there is much greater control from government, from central government around uh, what and how teachers are taught, which again is, is should be deeply worrying and concerning for people. Hmm. I, I want to come back to your ebook again, John, because you, and I, I must say it's an immense piece of work, you... Um, in it, you talk about demonstrating what critical school geography should involve. You're, you're slightly different from the, the way that we looked at critical thinking in, uh, in that project, but you've developed it further than I think we did. And you've said that your writing on education for sustainable development and global citizenship has convinced you that radical democracy is the key to this, this new future, if you like. So... Two questions, really. What do you see as critical school geography? And then what do you mean by radical democracy? Yes, I think I've, I've covered something of the meaning of uh, critical school geography and its foundations in critical social theory. Now, one thing that critical social theory concerns itself with is the distribution of power and how power works in society. And contemporary critical theorists like Charlotte Mouffe um, develop a theory of left populism and radical democracy that recognises that citizens currently have little power over the way in which society develops. They get a vote every five years, but that's hardly democracy. So what radical de democracy seeks to do is to deepen and wider democracy as a means of redistributing wealth and power and thereby extending equality, liberty, fraternity. I've suggested that uh, radical democracy means that citizens should have power over all aspects of society, the economy, politics, culture, the environment, and they should be able to exercise this power at all levels from the local to the global. Now, that sounds very abstract, but what does it mean for teaching school geography? Well, it means introducing such initiatives, social innovations, as workers' co-ops, workers' share ownership, 
universal basic income, citizens' assemblies, participatory budgeting, popular planning, community schooling, publicly owned media platforms, along with constitutional reform, reform of the EU, reform of the UN. All that, to some extent, should be embedded in the uh, geography curriculum by the age of 16. And the chapters and units in the book draw on this notion of critical democracy um, by using a critical and empowering pedagogy. And we'll perhaps come to critical pedagogy later. And the reason I adopt UNESCO guidance documents is that they provide a springboard for introducing radical democratization and uh, radical global citizenship. And I think if, if anyone's wanting to further their thinking on this, we just point them to the relevant chapters in the book and we'll put the links in with the podcast. That's right. To allow people to, to follow that up because there's some much deeper thinking that you've written about and in there. Clearly the reason I published it as an ebook is it contains hundreds of links to websites, open source articles, videos. Videos. Paul, so now how does, we've, we've gone through radical democracy, how does being a radical geographer sit with that notion? I've got one of my favourite quotes from uh, Margaret Mead, which says, never doubt that a small group of thoughtful, committed citizens can change the world. Indeed, it is the only thing that ever has. I think it's important as teachers that we place um, the student's experience within this wider historical context of actually um, the only thing where or, uh, points in history where there has been radical change to do with maybe um, uh, human rights, to do with gender and equality. So we think about the suffrage movement, um, you know, at, at those points in time, um, those people were uh, criminalized, they were chastised, um, they were kind of outsiders within society. And I think it's important for us to understand that that's how society has often changed. That some of the things that some of the major events that have caused change uh, have at the time been seen as particularly, um, you know, bad in in essence, and and sort of most people have not agreed with. And and the other th strand of this then as well is to emphasise the um, agency, the human agency, and the empowerment that's possible. And I think often. Uh, young people can feel disenfranchised and there's an analogy of um, when I teach students I often sense that they feel like they're on a um, conveyor belt or a treadmill that they simply are moving through stages of their life that are set out for them and I think as teachers it's important to to um, shake students from that um, thought process and for them to realize actually that they create the world that they live in that though there are lots of other actors upon them and processes and structures if they can understand those and react to them um, they can then help them make the world a better place um, and I think that's something that's, that's important within that role within the broader democracy. Mm. Earlier you mentioned uh, pedagogy uh, John and, and perhaps this is a time to follow that up then so we've got the idea of what radical geography is and we've got critical school geography what should it look like in the classroom Ren? what does the what does the pedagogy entail? Well, I think it will be familiar to listeners as inquiry learning. Um, I Margaret Robertson, or she's written on inquiry learning. I think the way in which it differs from critical thinking, as in the GA's project, 
is that it introduces critical theory. In other words, what makes thinking critical is if it draws on critical social theory. It's not enough for thinking to be logical and rational. It has to get to the deep structures and processes in society and their unjust and undemocratic nature. And it has to do this without preaching or indoctrinating students. And that's where we have critical pedagogy, inquiring into whether critical ideas fit with my experiences day to day with what's happening in my community. And if I apply those ideas, the real or simulated example, do they work out? Do they change the world for the better? We test ideas in action, reflection and action, the notion of praxis, which underpins critical theory. So in each of the curriculum units in the book, I have activities which design to do that. They take the writings of critical academic geographers like Danny Dawling on schooling and parental choice in schooling. And I get students to see how this works out, whether it's just and democratic or not, whether they were best having academies or cooperative democratically owned and planned schools. Do you see a difference, Paul, between that that notion of critical school geography? It's taken my thinking further because I, I, I had not thought of that when we were doing the critical thinking for achievements. But John's right; there was there wasn't that critical underpinning, that critical theory that underpinned it. But I thought it was effective. So how how does that sit? Critical school geography and radical geography. It's interesting. I, th I think, um, well, for me, a lot of my uh, thinking around this comes from authors and books outside of the educational frame. So just as John mentioned there, Danny Dawling has been a really influential um, academic uh, around thinking of inequality. And what I'm really interested in is bringing that into school geography and thinking about how you can approach those ideas and and um, kind of explore that within the classroom. Um, I mean, there's also David Lambert and John Morgan who've who've written really extensively around this sort of teaching geography um, as if the planet matters and really putting that at the heart of that. Um, the, what I was also thinking um, kind of earlier on as well is there's a book by Rob Hopkins called From What Is to What If? And his book explores this idea of limits in imagination that one of the problems with society more broadly is the idea that we just simply can't imagine an alternative and I think there's a key role within schools in order to help facilitate that and I think this critical nature of essentially questioning everything is really fundamental to that um, what I would say as well is that um, something we've tried to, to really underpin radical geography is this sense that knowledge is debated and that there isn't um, an ultimate truth that we can just uh, spoon feed to students and say, learn this and you'll suddenly become a better person and the world will, will be um, better. Instead, there's a really discursive uh, approach that we need to take in order to expose young people to um, knowledge and also to ideas and then engage them in the process of, of um, exploring those and I think 
um, this idea of the Margaret Roberts inquiry questions. I know increasingly people are bringing that into their classrooms and using that approach to frame ideas is a good start. But I think we also need to think about it fundamentally shifting the way that we approach teaching in the classroom. Um, and instead of being the teacher expert who stands at the front and spouts knowledge, instead acting as um, someone to help students along in a journey and to learn as well as part of that process. And I think it's it's almost standing in a classroom and accepting your weaknesses, being very um, uh, frank in terms of, as we've said before, your sort of political stance, but also the strengths and weaknesses of your own knowledge. And I think that's, that's beneficial to, to the broader learning experience as well. I've, um, I've found with some of the work that I've done with teachers is um, a lot of things get lost uh, and that comes around goes around but but things that we did in the late 70s that were quite I thought quite radical at the time were lost and when they get revived again they're seen as something new with a different name but actually we we go around the houses at times um, and part of that is because I think teacher training isn't done in universities anymore if you just do your teacher training in one school you'll pick up the way that that school does it. And more shocking for me was when I had comments where teachers said, this is great stuff, I haven't got time to do it because I've got to get through this bit of the curriculum. And in my mat, I get the lessons delivered on PowerPoint and I have to be up to speed with that particular PowerPoint. Have you come across that much, Paul? Yes, I've, I frequently speak to trainee teachers, to groups of teachers, and there are those stock phrases of, I just simply need to deliver this content, I need to get through the course. And those sorts of phrases are the death of teaching, that that is not um, learning in the sense of, of really effective um the stuff that changes the world. And I think teachers need to realise that, that they play an integral role in that. The, the thing I'm interested, maybe with also uh, John's opinion around the, the role of exam boards. I know um, there was a phase where um, exam boards almost had their knuckles wrapped and were told they had to separate from publishers and there, there, there was a, a point in, at time with that. But I think there's also been a creep in the sense that exam boards have gained increasing control over what is actually done in classrooms, both in terms of the, the content and the sort of knowledge that is explored, but also even the, the, um, the teaching activities and the teaching practice. And so many teachers are looking at exam boards for advice in those areas. And I think there's a, there's a danger that then we hand over too much control to those sorts of organisations who many of them are big private organizations who are looking uh, not necessarily um, at young people's kind of the the the, uh, the best for young people i think john what what's your thinking around those i think it fits with your earlier remark about the corporatization of online learning the uh, influence of the exam boards is certainly growing in that there are not the universities providing cpd and they're stepping into uh, that opportunity. Um, in the book, I talk about teachers' unhappiness, their alienation, which results from increase, the increasing pace they're expected to work, the notion of deliverology, that they tied to targets and inspections, there's always too much to do. 
We haven't time to read theory. We haven't time to reflect. And the good thing that you're doing, Paul, is encourage them to fight back, to find solidarity in opposition. And we need more of that because teachers need to reclaim their professionalism. They need to reclaim their voice on exam boards. They need to resist what the government is continually trying to do, which is to turn them into automatons in these exam factories, which are merely delivering young workers and citizens who don't question the status quo. This must exasperate you somewhat, John, because you've seen wonderful teaching, wonderful models, then they fall out of favour, and uh, it's a sort of comes around, goes around. Yes, yeah, but one can only hang in there on the chance that it comes around again and you're better prepared to take the opportunity. That's what set me off in 2016. We had a notion of Jeremy Corbyn, we might get a socialist government, we might get a change of educational policy. There was enough to get me back to the keyboard. Mm -hmm. we, we, John and I had some interesting we've discussions. In, we've got to live in hope. <laughs> John, we, we talked before, um, we've had some conversations where I've raised some of the uh, challenges that I've felt. And John has just nodded and sort of been saying, oh, you know, these are similar to, to I experienced years ago. And it's 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 somewhat ridiculous that, that like you say, these things cycle, but that, that there's so much repetition in this that there's there hasn't been the change that, that's been called for. It, yes, it is. It, it, it frustrates me, I have to say. I've, I've done some training where people have said, I wish we'd... I wish we'd done this when I was at school. And I'm now thinking, well, I, I did teach like that when I started teaching with models and the GA produced some wonderful, I thought, critical thinking models in the late 70s, early 80s. The, uh, the work that was produced then. And then it went on to David Leet and books like that. John, also what we're saying now, though, and part of the, the agenda of radical geography is that there's a sense of urgency now that mm -hmm. uh, the time is now. You know, we've said that for decades and maybe that's something we'll come on to is a lot of this terminology has been around for a long time. Um, the definition for sustainable development was was uh, written the year I was born. And so I've lived my whole life with the definition of sustainable development. But has anything fundamentally changed? And we're reaching a point in human history where actually it's, it's there's a turning point. And you know, we've seen in the in the public rhetoric, we've got people like Greta Thunberg who have been shifting the narrative. And I think there's a there's um, a point now where educators really need to embrace that, and and teachers need to feel braver um, in response to that public narrative. Would you change the terminology? You've you've been a little critical, but then. If we think critically about almost all of the definitions, there's, there's no one set definition of poverty. There's no one set definition of development. When you stick to sustainable and development together, what on earth does that mean? And people who've got in their heads that development actually means economic growth. The, the words perhaps of themselves need challenging again and reflecting on rather than developing a new vocabulary. I think that sometimes confuses and and alienate some people because we're coming up with new words i don't know i'm just amusing now i'm just throwing things out I, I think you're right though i think um a lot of the language is problematic but that to acknowledge that is the point that we want educators 
to be at to say look these terms are not um given and um completely accurate in their own sense that, that they are debated and that if we can then share that sort of I mean the obvious one is is development language that's maybe the easiest for, for teachers to understand is that a lot of the exam boards and a lot of teachers are still using terms to categorize countries that are decades out of date um, there's some, some terms like least and most developed countries and if you think about development you know, that's that's innately particularly problematic um, but as a teacher you need to confront that with students and you need to explore those words and that as a learning experience is so much more valid than simply saying this is how we categorize countries and just learn them. John? I think, I think with sustainable development it's helping students to recognize that it can be cast in a free market, a socially democratic or socialist mould. You've got Johnson at the moment with his Green Industrial Revolution, which is likely to be a free market construct of sustainable development. But we've mm. also got the Green New Deal group and groups like Progressive International arguing for a socialist version of sustainable development. Helping students to see the differences and make choices is what critical school geography should be doing. Yeah, I, I think to, to build on some of that as well, I think some of where I'm coming from is that the terminology around education for sustainable development has been around for such a long time, or even I'm critical of the sustainable development goals and um, a lot of the, the work that the UN has done around that, simply because, and it's probably simplistic to say this, but that it just hasn't had the impact and the effect that's needed. So we should be critical of it because it just hasn't had this pace of change that's necessary. But the fault that it hasn't had the impact you're hoping for is not the fault of UNESCO. It's the fault of the way the world economy and the world system is organised. Mm. They only make token gestures towards it. We need the revolution that you previously suggested that Greta and other people are arguing for. I suppose we could we could start by talking about the the inequality that we have at the moment. The richest one percent owning forty five percent of the world's wealth. They're the people who can hold the power, who hold back any sort of development of this sort, because they want to preserve the status quo. There was a wonderful game we used to play in it was in general studies, but it was called Star Power, and it was about how absolute power corrupts absolutely. It's a wonderful game. We had, to, we had to debrief the students at the end for half an hour because they got themselves so angry at the idea. The ones who'd been left behind, the ones within the structure of the game who were ignored and belittled, and the ones at the top, some of them who thought, I'm sitting here and I'm, I'm, I'm benign. What I'm doing is, is wonderful. Not it, it, In a microcosm, that game produced this uh, global the same global inequality as, as we've just talked about. So as geographers, we would be studying this on a, on a range of scales. I know, John, you've written about the impacts of globalisation and austerity on left-behind places and communities in the UK. And that's been quite powerful. You've got some. You've got a, a whole series of lessons around that one, haven't you? Yes, and they link with the right populism and Brexit and why left-behind places voted as they did, the whole Red Wall um, proceeds. 
I think it links with why don't we teach about the rich in geography? Why are we obsessed with the poor and underdevelopment? Why aren't we more honest about the rich? Why do we teach about them and their increasing power and their back doors to Whitehall and their... Mm. This, I, John, I think it's you, also... This, this is how um, society conditions us to not question mm. those things. And as teachers, we feel we have to reflect that. So we feel very uncomfortable. A lot of these issues are seen as taboo. Um, so the idea of talking about someone's income um, you know, between friends that would be seen as crass and a bit rude but it's the sort of thing that we need to do we need to expose these and we need to confront them uh, sort of head on and I think as teachers we should feel confident to do those and I know that requires training and understanding in order to do but it is one of the only ways that we can then actually improve the situation there's some very powerful challenges as well when you start doing that sort of thing because if you're not careful you're suddenly faced with oh it's just the politics of envy no it's not it's not the politics of envy at all but that's how it's portrayed if you start to attack this you've got a scheme of work haven't you called who owns england paul yeah so this is working with guy shrubshaw and um nick hayes so nick's just written a book called trespass and um i know teachers are particularly keen to jump from book to book and and teachers are uh, particularly geography teachers are really keen to share reading but these are two books that i'm sure every geography teacher needs to read but what this scheme of work does is it sort of embodies a lot of these radical geography ideas where it, there's embedded sort of experiential learning and children are encouraged to engage with the wider world so one of the homework tasks is to actually go out and try and find uh, explore the local boundaries and fences uh, and you know, take a photograph next to a sign that says no trespassing um, but I think underneath this as well as this idea of, of, of almost like hidden knowledge or knowledge that we don't explore and isn't confronted within um, the, the structures of the world already so you know disproportionately um, a very small handful of people own the majority of land in England. And you might say, well, you know, does that make a difference? Well, there's a there's a link between land ownership and power within our society. You know, that goes back to the idea of lords and um, you know, representation in Parliament. And even still, some of the largest landowners are parliamentarians. And I think young people need to acknowledge that relationship and by um, kind of engaging them critically with um, how we manage land and who owns it is, uh, for me, uh, something that society kind of has ignored, but also education has ignored that as well. Well, they don't get it from the media at all. That sort of view is not a media view yeah I, th I think that's another avenue of all of this as well as the idea of where do young people get their information and news from and i know we, we were talking before the idea that there's increasingly alternative news sources so we've got um people like double down news um navara media who because of uh the kind of facilitation of the internet and the idea that you can create these this kind of video content and upload it i think that is helping to expose people um to some of this and uh, i know more and more teachers are using that within their teaching one of the th this is this is a slight tangent but one of the things that that interested me when i was reading what you put together john was that this this danger that students were left with a, a simplistic understanding and a historical understanding. And uh, you mentioned the Franco Pan book 
and one of your units is based on China's Belt and the the, the road initiative. Yeah, I, it was absolutely fascinating when I read that. There was a, there was a lot of the the Frankopan book that I hadn't I just hadn't realised the movement of power across the world in in history and the lack of my knowledge of it. And I'm a geography teacher. I've been a geography teacher for forty years, and I was I was finding new stuff. And I did history at university. It, it's uh, just talk a little bit about what you you did there. It's about the new imperialism. It's about geopolitics. And the basic idea is that students need some understanding of the changing world, the changing nature of geopolitics, the world they're growing up in. And their lives are going to be profoundly influenced by the rise of China and the decline of the UK and possibly the USA. We haven't got used to being a post-imperial, post-colonial power that was all reflected in Brexit. And I think encouraging students to take a more realistic view of Britain's place in the world is changing place in the world. And what's happening with rising powers like China is important. So that curriculum unit does look at the Belt and Road Initiative. It looks at its influence on the Uyghurs because the Belt and Road Initiative moves through that part of northwestern China. It also looks at its influence on East Africa and on tribal groups within East Africa. And it's really getting students to ask, is China the new imperial power? And how should we respond to that? Any comments, Paul? But I, I think, um, you know, again, Danny Dawling has written about some of these ideas of the why Brexit and then also this uh, the concept of the, the this slowdown. I think, um, you know, within England or Britain or, or the UK, we, we're struggling with our position within the world. And I think we've seen that within some of the uh, nationalistic movements and, and the kind of rhetoric and people like Nigel Farage, um, that I think educators can play a key role in helping uh, young people, but also broader society to kind of reflect and to re-engage and to think about our relationship with the world differently. I mean, one, one of the really current ways that this um, can be seen is coronavirus vaccinations we seem to have fallen into a trap where the wealthiest countries in the world are focusing on vaccinating their own populations whilst ignoring the rest of the world. And the reality is that until we are all vaccinated, we're still, you know, no one is vaccinated. We're still in the same situation. I think that that mirrors some of this thinking. I've been thinking about that because the, the next one might be the Burkina Faso variation, which uh, we're not vaccinated against. So that uh, that notion's not not really spoken about at the moment. I, it, there, was, there was one thing I saw on Twitter, a map I saw on Twitter that, that showed who was getting what, when, and most African countries 2022. But I don't know that it's got into any mainstream teaching at all. Yeah, I, I think coronavirus has 
such an impact on society and has shown how rapidly society can change. I think there's also something interesting about coronavirus and the impact it's had on education. And that's something we've maybe not discussed. It'd be interesting to know what John thinks about it's it's essentially coronavirus has exposed the fragility of the educational system, particularly in terms of assessment, but also the motivations of, of young people and teachers. You know, I'm sure a lot of people in year 11 are sat at home thinking, but what's the point, you know, if I'm not going to get the opportunity to be examined in the way that I thought I was going to, you know, and, and I'm hoping that a lot of educators are sat reflecting on actually, um, yeah, why they teach and what the purpose of education is because of coronavirus. Have you got any comments, John, before I butt in? Because I, I have. I think coronavirus has um, shown us the unsustainable, the unjust nature of capitalism. It's brought it all to the fore, but it's also allowed us to glimpse an alternative future because under lockdown, there has been more mutual aid and cooperation. There's been less work and consumption. There's been something resembling universal basic income. There's been a slowdown and more contact with the, the rest of nature for the fortunate members of the population, at least. Now, whether we'll go back to the old normal or whether we'll find some new kind of normal remains to be seen but what it means for education is parents and students have glimpsed that it's possible to learn otherwise and this system of putting young people in exam factories will I'm sure be questioned more than it was and it's a lever we can work with. I, I do hope so. I, I've gone through systems where it's teacher assessment and students have flourished and developed. I've gone through systems where the A-level and the GCSE projects were, the, the student thought the project up for themselves. And it was, a, it was a collaboration between the student and the teacher and all this business where you're not allowed to tell them and help them. The sort of thing that goes on in universities, is you, you would come across um, a piece of, of research for your master's and you talk it through with your tutor. Yeah. Those models are gone. Um, the certificate for pre-vocational education, I'm going to sound like a, a very old and crusty teacher, but we had, I think, some wonderful models. I know, John, and Paul, you, you were concerned to talk about assessments and what it means for the future. And what is there anything else you want to add? Well, I, I was fortunate to work in a school that was, wasn't constrained by traditional forms of assessment. So um, I did spend the last five years working in a, a school where uh, we ran our own courses, we assessed them. So it was an alternative to GCSEs. And the reality is that more and more schools um, are supporting this. So there's the XP school or group of schools, um, which is a, a number of state schools who are doing this. And there are a number of charities um like rethinking assessment and progressive education who for a while have been developing these ideas so i think we need to acknowledge that the um uh, the alternative exists that there are other ideas to terminal examination um and it's simply being open to and willing to to try those and to accept them it is interesting isn't it that a lot of ideas about continuous assessment came out of the schools council projects in geography in the 70s and while we don't want to go back to that, we need to rediscover a tradition and build on it in new times in perhaps a recovery curriculum, as it's being called. Mm. 
tell you what made me smile when I was going through some of the the reading for you, for what you've put, John. You you said in in 1879. In testimony to a select committee of the British Parliament, one petitioner was in no doubt about the threat. This is the threat of geography. Geography, sir, is ruinous in its effects on the lower classes. Reading, writing and arithmetic are comparatively safe, but geography invariably leads to revolution, (laughs) which I thought was rather wonderful. And we're not perhaps, well, I don't know, we are. We're talking of a revolution in the way that students are taught, I think. I think that's what we've been talking about this morning, haven't we? We've been talking about a revolution in what we teach, how we teach it, how we assess it. Um, interestingly, that's a quote from Danny Dawling's introduction to his Radical Geography series. He was fortunate to put my book on his social media feed in the autumn when it was published. I think uh, that was probably my biggest source of downloads, Danny Dawling's uh, recommendation. (laughs) But, um, of course, that quote's only true. It's only going to lead to revolution if it's of the kind of school geography that Paul and I have been advocating. Most school geography is mainstream. Mm. It's designed to be conservative and keep things as they are yes I'm, I'm afraid you're right although you're chipping away at it the pair of you with uh, some wonderful absolutely wonderful resources from both of you and the thinking that underpins it so as a package as uh, David Lambert used to call this the seductive model of CPD you give people things that they can use <laughs> which are wonderful and then they start thinking about them afterwards because people generally do their thinking second. That worked and it was brilliant. Why did that work? Oh, well, I'll go back to the reading now. And then you create the space for teachers to think. Because I think, you, as you said at the beginning, John, there is less time for thinking. And, and young teachers are not necessarily encouraged to do that in the schools that they're in. I think, is there anything else that you'd like to add? We're about at the end of our time for the podcast. And that's... That's a positive place to stop, I think. But you might want to just sum up the pair of you, just in case I've forgotten anything here. Yeah, I'll leave Paul to have the last word, but I suppose I'd want to bow out by saying my life as a geography teacher, as a geographical educator, a career's pretty what I've done is to establish, re-establish a body of ideas through the book and leave it for younger teachers to pick up find out what's happened, hopefully take it forward. And that's why I'm so encouraged by Paul and his group of radical geography teachers. Well, you know, I guess I, I would just say, you know, issues like um, climate and ecological emergency um, are a very easy way in for teachers now. And I think it's important that teachers question and constantly reflect on their practice and imagine alternatives and embrace those alternatives you know and and acknowledge that their practice is political and that learning is a form of activism and that all knowledge is debated and i think that's a very good starting point for then moving on i I wanted to talk to you more but we've run out of time and i think we should come back to uh, the climate crisis later but i think that's a wonderful place to finish so it's, it has. It's been a great pleasure talking to the pair of you and, and preparing for it and reading the materials that you've given me too. So thank you very much, both of you, for what I hope is a, is a really interesting podcast. 
If you've enjoyed today's episode of JogPod, you might also enjoy the GA Annual Conference. Taking place online from Thursday the 8th to Saturday the 10th of April this year, the conference gives you access to over 100 lectures and workshops from academics and teachers. There is also a programme of social events, giving you the chance to network with other teachers, alongside an exhibition, so you can discover what's on offer to support you. Prices start at just £50 for the full three-day conference, and student members of the GA can attend for free. Search GA Conference online for more information.